new or newish, my name is Pastor Pete, and I'm the lead pastor of Southwest. Uh, do you have something that you used to believe in, but you would be a little bit embarrassed to tell us about now? Do you know, I think everyone used to believe things, especially if they were kids, um, that you wouldn't believe in now, and if you said it, probably other people would laugh at you a little bit. Um, being a good Asian kid, I used to believe uh, that uh, if I left rice in my bowl, you know where this is going, right? If, if eating a meal and there's grains of rice left in my bowl, my future spouse would have the corresponding amount of acne or pock marks on her face. Who, who, who grew up getting told that lie? Yes, we were all lied to by our parents because this is not true. Karen's face is fine. Uh, so I looked up what other people used to believe in, and uh, here's some more. Uh, I found this on Reddit, the, uh, the social media platform. Uh, when I was young, this person writes, my parents told me that if I kept leaving the fridge door open, then I would freeze the whole world, and then no one would like me. This person said, I thought that little people were so small because they were all born on February 29th. I figured that since their birthday only came around once every four years, they would grow to be a quarter size. This person writes, I always heard people say it went down the wrong hole when they choked on something. Little me automatically assumed that humans had separate holes for food and drink. And when we swallow, it just automatically sorts it out. I believed that till I was like 12. When I choked on a french fry in the car with my mum, I said it must have gone down my drink hole. Mum was super confused and had to explain to me how swallowing food actually works. Last one. My aunt told me that God was everywhere, including inside me, so I stopped drinking apple juice to avoid getting him sticky. Well, what are difficult things that followers of Jesus, that Christians believe. Beliefs that the world might think is pretty dumb. Beliefs that we might be tempted to be embarrassed about. Um, very recently, there were two Christian beliefs that were expressed in the media by two different people. And it's very interesting how they both landed when our Prime Minister Scott Morrison got re-elected. The big headline was, I've always believed in miracles. You remember that? It was last week. I've always believed in miracles. And recently, Israel Folau, the rugby player, expressed something along the lines of, I believe that sinners go to hell. Now, it's interesting. They've both expressed things that Christians have always believed. One was okay. One really wasn't okay in the eyes of the world, right? And I think you know which is which. Well, in first century Corinth, this ancient city of Corinth, which is in Greece, ancient Greece and modern Greece now, for them to believe in the resurrection of the dead, the dead people came alive again. That was unbelievable. Not, not because they didn't believe in supernatural things or spiritual world or the afterlife. Okay, they're not like us, right? not so secularized that most, a lot of people don't even believe there's anything spiritual. No, they did believe in the supernatural spiritual. But in their worldview, the Greek and Roman worldview, dead people simply don't come to life again in their own bodies. Right? They believed in spirits, of course. They believed that dead people might become ghosts or demons, but not back to life with resurrected bodies. 
And even if they could come back to life, in their world, no one would want to come back to life with resurrected bodies. Because um, you might have heard of this guy called Plato, big philosopher dude in ancient Greece. Plato taught that the physical is not as important as the spiritual. You want to be perfect? Well, you need to shed the physical. Why would you want to come back in a physical body? Right? That's the last thing you'd want to do. So it's a little bit like Eastern religions nowadays, Buddhism, Hinduism. Yeah, the most ideal thing is to shed the physical, become entirely spiritual. Now that was what the world around the church in Corinth believed, and that became the view of some of the Christians in Corinth as well. Remember, we're looking at the topic of uh, messy church, well, the the title of this series is Messy Church, because the church in Corinth was a messy church. Part of the reason why they were so messy was they let too much of the outside world and its views influence them, rather than the other way around. Rather than them influencing the world out there, they let the world influence them. And so some within the church in ancient Corinth, first century Corinth, had started to doubt that there was a resurrection of the dead to come. Now, please note, they didn't stop believing in the afterlife. They still would have believed in eternal life. They still would have believed in heaven. They didn't stop believing that Jesus rose from the dead. They just stopped believing that the final destination for Christians was also resurrection from the dead. They stopped believing that this body, your body, would be raised back to life one day so that you could live in this world. They stopped believing that. Now, Paul, who writes this letter, Paul was their founder, church planter, apostle, pastor. Paul writes these chapters to them to tell them, you know what, if you stop believing in this, the stakes are really high, right? You don't believe in this, everything is threatened. Everything is at stake. Your forgiveness of sins is at stake. The good news of Jesus, the gospel is at stake. Your hope is is at stake. Your eternity is at stake. Your security is at stake. Your whole salvation is at stake. And that's what he's going to explain in the next few verses. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that seems very important and it was important to them. How is this relevant to us? Is this important for us today? Well, I want to say yes. And I want to say it's important to us because most of us, I would think, most of us don't actually think it's that important. You see, it, the fact that we don't think it's really important shows how important it should be. That for us, believing that the dead, that dead people come back to life again, right? Resurrection of the dead. Most of you say, yeah, of course we believe it. Like, it's in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. So what's the big deal? But I wonder if we really believe it. Do we really believe it? Is this one of those crucial, important things that we believe? If you had to list the top five things that Christians must believe, how many of you would have said the resurrection of the body? Not many, right? Now again, I'm not talking about believing that Jesus rose from the dead. That would make the top one or two for everyone. I'm talking about our resurrection. I'm not talking about going to heaven when we die, but I'm talking about believing that we actually come back alive again to live on this earth. That's what I'm talking about. How many of us think it's actually that important? How many of you would put that in your top five must-believe things? I doubt many of us would. And because we don't think it's that important, 
This is why it's relevant for us to get a handle of these verses, these chapters. Because I want to say that so much of our Christian life is skewed in the wrong way, unknowingly for most of us, because we don't really believe it. I'll give you some examples. If you don't think that protecting our environment is actually important as Christians, if your browsing and spending habits are just as consumeristic as everyone else's, if you're opposed to or have problems with why God would make sex and marriage one man, one woman for life. If you don't think that sharing the gospel or evangelism is really that important. Or if you think that the only thing that matters is evangelism and therefore your secular work and studies aren't that important. If you think in any of those ways, I want to suggest to you, you don't really understand and believe that the resurrection is that important. And that means this chapter is very important for us. So what's at stake? I've got three things according to Paul in your outlines, points one, two, and three. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Father God, please help us. Speak to us, we pray, because you promise to. And when your word is preached, that you promise to make it alive in our hearts. And there's certain things we need to hear and understand, but more importantly, there's so many things that we need to change in light of what you teach us today from 1 Corinthians 15. So help us do that. Help me speak in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the first thing at stake? It's the gospel. Uh, when I was growing up going to youth group, my youth group leader taught us if someone gets the gospel wrong, then they are wrong. Right? The gospel is the good news of Jesus, the message that Christians base their life on. And in verses 1 to 8, the first section of our passage Paul starts with the gospel. We didn't read it out earlier, but I'll read it in a moment. But the good news about Jesus that actually saves people when you trust in it. This gospel that he preached to the Corinthian church that they became Christians from, that they believed in, he starts with that. Why? Because central to this message, this gospel, is the belief in the resurrection of the dead. It's right there, right at the beginning, right at its heart and specifically the resurrection of Jesus. So, keep your Bibles open. We're going to read the verses we didn't get to read earlier, verses 1 to 8. Follow with me as I read. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep means died. Okay, he's going to say that a few times, this passage. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul starts with the gospel and he answers two questions. What is the gospel? And secondly, why is it important to get it right? So what is the gospel? He says, the gospel is the historically testable, verifiable life of Jesus as passed on 
by reliable witnesses. That's what the gospel is. It's historically verifiable, passed on by reliable witnesses. So he says, firstly, the gospel is about Jesus who died for our sins. Right? The for there means because of our sins, or if you like, to take the punishment for our sins. That's why he died in our place on the cross for our sins. Then he was buried. What's that trying to communicate? Jesus actually really died. He went in the tomb. It's not a fake death. He didn't just get, go unconscious. He actually died and he was buried. And everyone knew that he was dead. But most importantly, and this is where he's getting to, Jesus, three days later, came back alive. He actually walked out of that tomb. His body is there no more. And that is witnessed by hundreds of people. Do you see, the gospel rests on verifiable historical eyewitness accounts. That really means something. And especially back in his day, because Paul was writing this, by the way, 1 Corinthians may be one of the earliest writings of the New Testament, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? A letter like 1 Corinthians was likely earlier than them. This is about th less than 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. Now, some of you are like, 30 years seems like heaps long, right? And those of us kind of my age or older are thinking, 30 years goes like that. The point is, 30 years is not that long, especially when it comes to history and eyewitness accounts. He's saying, look, 30 years is gone, but you can still talk to the people who witnessed that. There are hundreds of them still alive. Now, I'll just give you an example, 30 years. 30 years ago, almost to the day, June 4th will be the day, some of us will know of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Yeah? If you were to deny it happened, if you said, nah, this is all a hoax, fake news, all right, didn't really happen, this, this picture was photoshopped, even though Photoshop didn't really exist 30 years ago, but, you know, it's all fake. Do you know what I'd say? I'd say, you know what, just go and talk to people. Because there are lots of people who are still alive when this happened. Eyewitnesses. There are lots of migrants who came to Australia, by the way, when they were students, right, just after this, because Australia opened its arms to, to refugees from the Tiananmen Square massacre. Just talk to them. They're still alive today. They can tell you 30 years. You see, 30 years is not that long. Now, the good news of Christianity is like that. It rests on history. It's the only religion, by the way, that does. It's the only religion where history really matters, that it actually stands or falls on whether... Jesus rose again bodily from the dead three days later. It really stands or falls. If you are still in the process of seeking, finding out, is this true? And we have lots of people like that here every week. So, so glad you're here. This is a great place to find out and ask questions. But I want to suggest to you that, that that's a real point you need to really check. Find out whether it's true or not. Whether Jesus really can be historically verified as risen from the dead. I know dead people generally don't come alive, and they don't. That's why it's a miracle. But did this miracle happen? That one time in history, did it happen? Can I check it historically? Because if it's not true, don't believe it. Right? Don't believe it. Don't, don't, just don't become a Christian if it's not true. Now, this is quite different to the spirit of our age, isn't it? A lot of you will know that um, generally people are happy for you to believe in whatever. Your truth is your truth for you. Not my truth, but I'm happy for you. And it's fine if it can't be proved. Who cares really about history? Religion is actually mostly about experience anyway. You can still have God feel 
nice in your heart, even if these things aren't true historically. Well, that's not what the Bible is saying, is it? No. If this is not true, historically, verifiably, remember Paul's first question, what is the gospel? His second question is, why is it important? Now we're going to the second question. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if it's true or not? Because if it's not true, verse 2 says you've believed in vain. You've wasted your time. And then more than that, verse 2, he says, by this gospel you are saved. If this is not true, there is no salvation. It doesn't matter how warm and fuzzy you feel in your heart and have experienced God. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then there's no eternal life, there's no salvation, we are still facing hell. Do you, do you see how important that is? Now, if you are unsure about this, whether you are a follower of Jesus or you just investigate, if you are unsure, let me suggest to you that a great place to come is when we run Fresh again, and that will happen in August. Fresh is our small, um, intimate, over-coffee Q&A, dealing with kind of the central claims of Jesus. That's going to happen again here in the hall next door, starting about August. Because one of the weeks we dedicate to, did Jesus come back alive again? And how can we trust the Bible is true? Right? I suggest, even if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, if you're unsure about the reliability of Jesus and the Bible and the historical reliability of the... that you come and see if those questions are answered. Because it's that important, isn't it? All right. That's the first thing at stake. The gospel. Second thing. Verse 12 onwards, the bits that we read, that, uh, that Trevor read for us, spells out here what is the real problem with the Corinthians. See, not only did they not... Okay, sorry. It's not that they didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They did believe that. As I said, that wasn't something they had a problem with. But they had a primary problem with the idea that people, followers of Jesus, would rise from the dead ourselves. Right? So they believed that Jesus rose, but they didn't believe that Christians will rise. Now, Paul points out the big elephant in the room, the big glaring problem with believing that. So look at verse 12 again. Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's pretty obvious, right? It makes sense. You can't deny one without the other. Right? You can't believe that Jesus rose bodily, but we, or people, don't rise bodily. Right? To believe in one without the other is like when one of my kids announced a few years ago that they wanted to be half vegetarian. You can't be half vegetarian. It's impossible. You can't believe in one and not the other. You can't eat some meats and still be vegetarian. I won't say which kid. Anyway, verse 16. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. Futile means empty. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people are most to be pitied. Do you see what's at stake? What's lost? Faith. The whole Christian faith is empty, futile, hollow. It's a bit like a Huawei phone. In a few months' time, sorry if this is too fresh for you and you own a Huawei phone, Huawei will lose Google. No point having 12,000 cameras on the back if there's no software to run it. I'm sorry if it's too soon for you. 
The whole Christian life without resurrection would be futile and empty. What else is lost? Forgiveness. He says, you are still in your sins. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because some of you be like, hey, hang on. I thought it was Jesus' death that dealt with our sins. So even if he didn't rise from the dead, he would still have died and paid the punishment for our sins, right? So why, why is sin, so forgiveness of sins, affected? Well, here it is. Yes, Jesus still would have died for our sins, but it would have been ineffective. It wouldn't have worked. Why? Well, you know, in Jesus' day, by that time, there, have, there had been a lot of messiahs, Jewish messiahs, people who claimed that they were going to save the Jews, and a whole bunch of them have come over the, you know, the centuries, but they've all died. Most of them killed by the Romans, like Jesus was. But unlike Jesus, they all stayed dead. And the Jews in Jesus' day knew that a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. A dead Messiah means Rome won. A dead Savior can't save anyone. They've seen it so many times. Do you see? If Jesus had just stayed dead, he would have just been one of scores of dead messiahs who failed. Only resurrection means he can save. God wins. His death was effective. Do you see? Without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sins. It wouldn't have worked. But what else is at stake? So we've got faith is at stake. Forgiveness is at stake. Hope is at stake. If Jesus didn't rise, we don't rise. And this life is really it. Look at verse 30. Skip down to verse 30. We didn't read this earlier, but he's making the same point as he does in verses 16 and 19 to 19. Verse 30, and as for us, he's talking about he and his fellow workers, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus or our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, if all of this is fake, it's not noble to believe in it. Blind faith is not good. It's not noble that you have faith even if you have no evidence to believe in. I really admire your faith. You know, though you can't see any evidence for it, you still have such a strong faith. I wish I had your faith, but I admire it. That's not how Christianity works. It's not noble to believe in something that's not verifiable. He says it's pitiable. You of all people, Christians, we of all people should be pitied if we believe in a lie. Now, I know some of you have looked at this passage in community groups and you're wondering, in verse 29, what does it mean to be baptized for the dead? You did talk about it, right? It's a tricky one. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, so let me just quickly go through what I think it means. I thought I have to deal with it because you're going to ask me anyway, right? It probably does not mean that people were baptized for people instead of people who've died and didn't get baptized. It's probably not. Another way of understanding baptized for the dead is baptized on account of those who are dead. So what it means is it probably refers to people who became Christians and were baptized because they were inspired by the faith and hope of those Christians, right, who faced death with a certain hope. But these Christians have now died. So, for example, someone who sees a Christian on their deathbed 
and die with a real hope and love for Jesus, not being at all afraid of death. Someone who sees that and says, wow, you know what? I want their confidence. I want their hope. I want what they have. And because of that, has now become a Christian themselves and getting baptized. That's maybe what it means, right? Baptized on account of those who are now dead has to do with seeing Christians face death in such a way that you want to become a Christian yourself. It's my best guess, but ask me about it later if you don't agree. Okay, let's move on. So what's at stake? Faith, forgiveness, and hope. That's the important thing. If you didn't get the baptized for the dead, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Not very important. Number three, this is most importantly, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then God's entire plan of salvation actually is at stake. Did you know that? God's entire plan of salvation is at stake. Look at verse 20. Let's read those verses again. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes, through, or comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. All right. I'm not going to go through all of that verse by verse in detail, so let me just sketch for you. What is God's plan of salvation? If you read Genesis to Revelation, what would you say is God's plan of salvation? I'll tell you what it isn't. And if you're a weekend away, you'll remember. God's plan of salvation is not that we would all become disembodied souls spending eternity floating around with harps in heaven. God's plan of salvation is not that He would abandon this world because it's so lost, so dead, so gone, and instead will opt for a heavenly spiritual one instead. That's not God's plan of salvation. That may be what a lot of people think Christianity is about, but it's not. So what is God's plan of salvation? It's this. God's plan is that what sin wrecked through Adam, he would restore through Christ. That is the plan. God's plan was that he, remember, back in the garden, when he created Adam and Eve, he intended that he would rule this beautiful world he would make, but he would, he would rule it through a man, Adam. But sin wrecked that, of course, when Adam, this man, rebelled. Now, God's plan then isn't to abandon that plan, but actually to restore it, to restore his original attention. So he sends Jesus, the second Adam, the perfect man, the perfect Adam, into this broken world. See, Jesus would deal with sin and deal with death by dying for sin paying the penalty for it, and then really importantly, of course, Jesus will rise again as a man. Right? Perfectly God, but 100% man still. To rule as the perfect man, as God intended it. Do you see? What God intended through Adam, Jesus would now fulfill. He would once again rule His world, that's this world, through Jesus, through the man, Jesus. That's God's plan. But it's not just Jesus, of course. Um, he calls Jesus here the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits of those who have died. What's the first fruits idea? Um, in a few months' time, there's going to be the annual mango auction. What's the mango auction? 
the first tray of the first season mangoes before everyone gets a taste of the mango harvest, the first fruits of the mangoes, right, are going to be auctioned off for charity. And the better that the first fruit mangoes are, the more you can count on the rest of the harvest when summer comes around for the rest of us, the mangoes being good. Do you see that? That's what the first fruits idea is. Right? Jesus is that first that guarantees the rest. Right? It starts with him, but it's going to end with the rest of the harvest. See, God's plan is not just resurrected Jesus ruling, but resurrected humanity. All of Jesus' followers resurrected. And not just resurrected humanity, but remember the world is broken. God's plan isn't to abandon the world. His plan is to resurrect the world. His people resurrected. His world resurrected. A new us raised to life to live and rule with Jesus in a new world. But new as in, not as in completely new, like Mars, some other galaxy, this world renewed, resurrected where there will be no suffering, sin, and pain. And it's Jesus' resurrection that guarantees that. It's the first fruits. So you need to know Jesus' resurrection is not just an afterthought for God. You know, Jesus is on the cross dying, and God said, Ah, oh, gosh, didn't see this coming. I know, I'll raise him to life again. I'll show them. No, no, no. Jesus' resurrection, you see, is the climax of a plan that was thousands, millions of the years in making. It started in the garden. God already knew he would raise Jesus to be the perfect Adam. It's a little bit like, you know I'm going there, right? It's a little bit like Avengers Endgame or Infinity War and Endgame. That's films 21 and 22 of 22 films. The whole of the first 20 films, sorry if you're not a fan, I'm so sorry. I'm actually not, sorry, not sorry. Um, But... He's been 10 years in the making from Iron Man 1, right? It had been already in the plan of the makers to, to, to end up where we've ended up in Infinity War and Endgame. Isn't that cool, right? Well, how much cooler is God's plan of salvation? Millions of years in the making. Not an afterthought. Always there. Always headed to that direction. Just like our wonderful friends at Marvel. So that's what else at stake. God's plan. My final point. Um, you know the Apostles' Creed? It's been, you know, probably not written by the Apostles early on in the church. There's a line there that says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And my question to you, if you're a follower of Jesus today, is do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? How important is that to you in your belief system? Because if I, hope I've, I hope Paul has shown us that if you don't, everything is at stake. Now, as I said, I don't think any of us have a real problem believing in it, but do we really believe it is a question. Because I want to suggest three things that would be true if we really, really, really believed it, and it's parts A, B, and C on point four of your outlines. If we really did believe it, then you would believe that you are, I am, part of a bigger story. Yet God's plan of salvation is much bigger than just your sins forgiven, your soul saved, so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's much bigger than that, isn't it? Not that these things are unimportant or untrue, but it's much bigger. God's plan is to put your life and my life as a part of a huge story, bigger than the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
All right? You get to be part of a story of how he's going to restore everything that sin has broken. We are all part of that bigger story. Jesus, Jesus didn't just die to save your souls. He rose again also so that we can live our lives submitting to him as Lord and King and one day reign with him alive again in this world. Resurrected. That's God's bigger plan. You've got to see yourself as that bigger plan. Now, if you have questions about that, if you're not, hey, if, if you were at Weekend Away, none of this is new to you, all right? If you weren't at Weekend Away, listen to those talks. They're free, they're online, check out our website. Uh, or if you were at Weekend Away, re-listen to them, because they really are dealing with the same things. Okay, so that's the first thing. If you really believed it, you'd see you're part of a big story. The second, if you really believed it, then you would know that this world matters to God. Did you know, Christians, followers of Jesus, that creation... Right, what you can see and hear and feel and touch and smell and eat and drink, matter, this flesh, blood, physical life, this all matters. God doesn't reject His world. He redeems it. He will resurrect it. That has all sorts of implications for our view of art, music, technology, ethics, and of course the environment. And that would be more for another day or many days. But I want to say, just throwing it out there, that there are tensions, things that you have to hold in balance, and there's lots of those in the Christian worldview, Christian life. And I say that these are tensions that you can only hold in balance well if you understand the resurrection. Let me just give you some of these tensions. If you weren't aware already, here's some of the tensions that if you really understood the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of us and the universe, that's your way of holding it well together. Some of the tensions are, for example, how we should care for our environment. How things like climate change really does matter, even though God is going to transform it and renew it one day. That's a tension, isn't it? Another tension, how God values marriage but also singleness. And he values both. How about this one? Why is evangelism, sharing the gospel, an urgent, urgent priority? And yet, your secular jobs still matter enormously. How do you hold those two things in tension? If you find you can't hold it in tension very well, maybe you don't really understand the resurrection. How about this one? Sex is a wonderful, wonderful gift from God, sex and sexuality. But it's only meant to be enjoyable within the boundaries that God has put around it. In marriage, one man, one woman for life. How can both be true? Our world says, no, if you have A, you can't have B. If you have B, you can't have A. Do you hold it in tension well? How about this last one? This good world we live in is to be enjoyed, but yet not idolized. How, how do you hold that intention? How you can see that money is a good gift from God, and yet the love of money is not good. How do you hold those intentions? Now, I haven't, I've not given you any answers. I've just raised them. And I want to suggest to you, if you really understood the resurrection God's plan, 
you'll be able to hold those things in tension a lot better. But it all comes down to the world matters to God. And last of all, we as followers of Jesus live the future in the present. Um, have you ever thought, you know when Jesus was alive and about three times in each gospel, three times he would say to his disciples that he would um, pr- predict that he would die? You know, he, he, he said, the Son of Man, him, I'll be rejected, I'll suffer, I'll crucify, and then after three days I'll rise again. And every single time his disciples had an issue with that. But did you notice what they had an issue with and what they didn't have an issue with? They always had the issue with, Jesus, you would die, because obviously they didn't think Messiah would die, right? And that's fair enough. But you know, not once did any of them say, Jesus, did you just say you're going to rise again? Three days later. Have you ever thought why they questioned the death pit? But I, I would have thought lots of people die. But I don't know about you, but I've never seen someone come back to life again. Wouldn't they have been thinking, Jesus, you just said you're going to come back alive? Seriously? These things don't happen, you know, Jesus. Not once did they question him about that. Why is that? Why didn't they question that? Well, it's because of this. Every Jewish person believed that resurrection would happen one day. Right? Every Jewish person believed that at the end of the world, at Judgment Day, all of God's faithful people would come back to life again. And so did Jesus' followers. So when Jesus said, I will rise again in three days, they just thought three days was metaphorical for the last day. So they didn't question Jesus about it because they all believed it. So what was surprising when he did rise from the dead, they were like, oh my goodness, you actually are alive, but you're alive now. That's what was surprising. When Jesus walked out of the tomb three days later, they were shocked because it wasn't at the end of history. And because he walked out of the tomb three days later in the middle of history, everything they needed to rethink, okay? They needed to rethink because what it meant for them now is that the future has invaded the present. That's what Jesus' resurrection in the middle of history meant, right? These things that should have only happened in the future has now happened to Jesus first. And if it's happened to Jesus, then it then the future has invaded the present. And that's got to change everything you think about this world. The new creation is not just something we look forward to in the end, but it's actually invaded the old. And it means that those of us who belong to Jesus now are part of that new creation invasion force now. Don't believe me? Have a look at this passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. You don't have to wait till the end resurrection day to experience a new creation because Jesus rose in the middle of history those who belong to Jesus by his spirit are already part of the new creation we are pockets of new creation everywhere you go do you know in in the weekend away I talked about in terms of pockets of heaven on earth same idea the church is the new creation community planted like a foreign embassy in another land Now this, I I hope you see, this has massive implications for everything you do now, doesn't it? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, everything you do is a vehicle to be a foretaste of the new creation. Everything you do can be a foretaste of the new creation, of God's new world. And if those in the world who don't belong to Jesus, what's their only chance of tasting the new creation and and seeing, hey, this is something that I want? It's through you. You individually, through your collective. It's like, I don't know if you've ever bought something because you've got a free sample. Who likes getting free samples? I love getting free samples. Sometimes I'll walk through food courts on Sundays just because that's free sample day. 
And I'll just eat every free sample. Most of the time I don't buy it because I just want the free stuff. Occasionally, you taste something so good and you're like, I've got to have some of that. Yeah? We give out free samples of the new creation. And it's going to taste so good if we're really giving it out. And people all around us should be saying, I want that. I want that. I want some of that. So just think about the next conversation you have with a fellow student or a colleague at work. Or the next prayer you pray for someone in need. The next dollar you give for the poor. All of these is an opportunity to give out free samples of the new creation. The way you treat your colleagues, your fellow students, your boss above you, your subordinates below you. The way you might practically care for our environment. The way you go against the grain not to give in to sex outside of God's design for marriage. Or not to give in to the consumerism and endless greed that's promoted. Or not to give in to despair or cynicism or anger. It's a vehicle for the new creation. The way you honor your parents and keep loving them even when it's hard. The way you decide, I'm not going to take revenge or getting even at someone who's hurt me. The way you rest and have recreation and enjoy God's good creation. The next nappy you change. The next car trip you take as your kids' chauffeurs. The next date night you prioritize with your spouse. The next meal you cook for your elderly parents. Look, there's no end to this list because everything you do as followers of Jesus is an opportunity for the new creation to invade the old. Do you see that? And so you see what's at stake, right? I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I hope you do too. Let's pray, get ready to see. Lord Jesus, please give us such a clear grasp of what your resurrection has achieved. Not just for our sins, but for your plans. Help us today to dial into that, to get with the program with that, so that it'll affect everything we do for your glory. Amen.